If you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your family. That's what the spiritual teacher Ram Dass said, and it strikes a chord with so many of us. Combine that with the inherently stressful holiday season, and it's no wonder that the last few months of the year are some of the most difficult for so many people. That's why we're opening the doors to the Spiritual Habits Group Program once again, and I'm inviting you to join me. Whether you're looking to develop a consistent daily meditation practice, or implement mindfulness practices into your life, or connect more deeply to what really matters, the Spiritual Habits Group Program will give you the tools you need to turn this wisdom into daily, sustainable, transformational practice. And you'll do so in a community where you belong and feel connected. Finish 2021 strong with the satisfaction of knowing you showed up as your best self with less stress, able to actually enjoy this time of year. Just go to oneyoufeed.net slash spiritual habits to join the program. Enrollment is open now through October 12th. That's oneyoufeed.net slash spiritual habits. It's like the brain is this expectation machine. It's an expectation engine. It's continually forecasting. What's it going to be like if I have Chinese food or Italian food tonight, or if I say this or say that in that interaction? And very often what it's doing is it's forecasting pain. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Thanks for joining us. This episode is unique in a few ways. It's actually a reoccurring guest, which is psychologist Rick Hansen, but also it's a multi-person podcast. We have Eric, we have our own Ginny Gay, 
joining in as the co-host, and then Rick and his son Forrest, who host the popular Being Well podcast, are both on this episode as well. Rick is a psychologist and writes and teaches about the essential inner skills of personal well-being, psychological growth, and contemplative practice, and together their podcast addresses many of those same issues. Hi, Rick. Hi, Forrest. Welcome to the show. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having us. Oh, hey, I'm really happy to be here. And welcome, Ginny, to the show. Hi. Well, thank you. Listeners have heard you on some spots before, but this is the first full episode we've had you involved. And so we're really excited. This is a four-person conversation, which we have never done here on the show. And we thought Rick and Forrest would be a great couple of people to kick this off with. So why don't we start like we always do with a parable, but why don't we let you take it? All right. All right. Let me see what I can do here. I've heard it a bunch. Let me see how I can speak it. All right, Forrest, <laughs> it's you and me. <laughs> all right. So the parable goes like this. There was a grandparent that was talking to their grandchild, and they said, in life, there are two wolves at battle inside of us. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandchild stopped and thought for a second and said, well, which one wins? And the grandparent said, the one you feed. So I'd love to know what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. Yeah, well, for starters, thank you, Jenny, for asking it. I think it's a great question. And I love that the podcast is in some ways centered around that question. For me, the first place that I go when I think about it is to a lot of my dad's work makes sense, right? Which is about cultivating positive strengths inside of yourself. When I kind of take a little bit of a right turn from that is around the relationship that the two wolves have to us. So for me, I think that for a lot of people, there are two wolves in the heart. One of them's a good wolf. One of them's a bad wolf, if you want to use that language. And for many people, the wolf kind of has its leg stuck in a trap. And the bad wolf is actually a very friendly wolf, seemingly, to them. Because for many, many people, it's a lot easier to kind of feed the aspects of their self that are actually not serving them in long-term ways. And a lot of the time when we're making positive change in our life, when we're cultivating those positive tendencies that we have, that can be a long and painful road. So the good wolf kind of snaps at you as you come ever closer to it, attempting to free it from the trap. Whereas the bad wolf can be very seductive, very friendly, very engaging. And a lot of the hard work that we do in this life is about trying to free that good wolf, if you will, from the prison that it finds itself in. And so that's kind of where I take maybe the slightly modified version of the teaching story. I didn't mean to alter the parable there. But I just think that for many, it's so much easier to lean into their negative tendencies in different kinds of ways. And we see this all over the place with addictions of various kinds, with leanings in the mind. And it's so much harder to lean into the person that they actually are deep inside, maybe the person that they were before the world kind of got in the way a little bit. So that's what I think of when I think of the question. You know, that makes me actually think of something that you have written about, Forrest, the dreaded experience. Oh, yeah. This is a a vamp on my dad's material to give attribution here. But yeah, I love it. Okay. (laughs) Well, I first saw it as an Instagram post that you did, and I saved it, and I have gone back to it over and over again because I just so connected with it deeply. This idea that we have a a core fear or maybe core fears, right? It typically can be an emotional experience that we organize our lives around avoiding. And when I read that, I thought, 
oh my gosh, do I ever. I can rattle off a few just right off the top of my head, but then the yeah. closer I looked, you know, the more I sort of held that thought and looked around, the deeper it went for me. And I wondered if you would mind maybe sharing a little bit more, elaborating on that a little for listeners to know about what this idea is and how it might show up in our lives. Yeah, I'm super happy to. Also, um, at the end of whatever I say here, Dad, of course, you're more than welcome to give your take. But uh, the basic idea is exactly how you outlined it. I think you outlined it really well, Jenny, where for most of us, there is some fear, some emotional experience. Maybe it's oriented around vulnerability for a lot of people. For a lot of people, it's oriented around shame. For me, um, my personal one just to share is uh, feeling like a bad person, quote unquote. There's this kind of apocryphal story inside of our family of me being a very young kid and kind of going into my parents' bedroom and saying, you know, I feel like a bad soldier or I, I feel like the bad knight. And that was just such a centrally painful experience to me. And I see many ways in which I've kind of oriented my life around avoiding feeling like that bad person in a lot of ways that I've accommodated my behavior in order to do that. In some ways that are totally normal, totally like pro-social, typical stuff. And in some ways that I don't think served me long-term. And one of the more challenging things I've had to do in my life is like lean into those moments where I have a cringe factor, you know, as my dad likes to say, where my cringeometer is turned up to 10, you know, and those are some good indicators for a lot of people that you're trafficking in the territory of your dreaded experience, this pain that you feel inside oriented around a certain kind of um, emotional sensation that you're having. That makes so much sense. I think for me, it shows up as, you know, this basic fear of being like not enough, not good enough, yeah, not yeah. whatever enough, you know, or mm -hmm. in some way unworthy. And, and when I say yeah. it out loud, you know, my head says, that's ridiculous. You know, of course you are. But th there's something deeper in me that clearly has some real aversion to having that be validated in some way, you know, by an experience. And Rick, maybe if you want to chime in here too um, with Forrest, like how do you encourage people to lean into that and actually begin to step outside these invisible walls that we've built for ourselves, so that we don't stay so small? It's a fundamental question because I think that the experiences that we habitually avoid form the cages, form the bars of our invisible cage. They bound our life. And a lot of what growth is about and healing is becoming more and more willing to risk those experiences. Very often, they actually don't happen. They used to happen, maybe. The odds of them were maybe high when we were little because of the circumstances we were in or in our last job or last marriage. But today, the actual odds are pretty low. But even if they did happen, we'd also be a lot more able to handle them. So recognizing that the odds of the dreaded experience are a lot lower today than they used to be. And second, it wouldn't feel so bad. And even third, recognizing that you could still cope with it. It wouldn't destroy you. It'd be a drag, it'd be a bummer, you'd be upset for a few hours or minutes or days, but then it would really pass. Knowing those things helps us take those chances. So I wondered, Jenny, if I could ask you a question. <laughs> sure. So when you talk about, uh, let's say for you, and I can relate to it very much, the dreaded experience of not being enough, for me, I would, I would add a kind of social element to it of being seen by others as not enough. Fault found, right? Oh, public humiliation or falling short, criticism. Oh, I grew up in a fault finding home. So, what would happen in your life? Can you imagine it if you were just willing to risk that experience? If you were willing to risk flopping, if you were willing to risk the booze, what kind of life might you have then? Right. 
You know, it's something that um, I'm trying to do actively more and more in my life. In fact, showing up today with you all is one way that I'm really trying to lean into the, the anxiety around what if I screw it up? What if I'm awful? Yeah. What if they think we're, yeah. you know, just total losers? <laughs> well, obviously, Eric's not. He's like 400 episodes into establishing <laughs> that. But being my first one, you know, it's like, yeah. what if Ginny is just bleh, the worst? Mm. Um, so realizing that, you know, I really do want to take the step to show up even here today with you guys. Mm. But I, I find myself having a lot of social anxiety because of part of really having authentic connection is that vulnerability and to be able to have connection, to be seen. So even showing up to, to lunch with a friend can cause me some anxiety. But every single time, every single time in recent memory that I have shown up, it has been life-giving and it has filled me with energy and love and connection and confidence. So it is, mm. it's like once I see past that fear through the experience of doing it, it helps me next time to take that step and to push mm. beyond it. Uh, but it still feels hard, you know, maybe in smaller ways or larger ways, depending, but it's still that element of hard is still there for me a little bit. Makes me think of something I heard you guys say recently, you were talking about limiting beliefs. Yeah. And I think it was you, Rick, that said something along the lines of our self-conception is always six months out of date. So great. And yeah. and so I great. actually think that's a very generous estimate. And a lot of times I think our <laughs> self-conception is years out of date. I felt the same way. Yeah. I would answer personality <laughs> tests up until a few years ago. Anything around impulsivity, I would always mark myself as impulsive. Yeah. I was a heroin addict at one point. So yes, I was pretty impulsive. But more of my adult life, that is not a trait yeah. that really shows up in me at all. And yet I identified that way year after year after year, you know. So I think this idea of, you know, the dreaded experience ties into our self-conception of ourselves. And I think, you know, Jenny, like you, thinking about going out to eat with a friend, we drag these old beliefs like that's hard, that's scary along with us. That doesn't match our recent experiences, as you were kind of saying, Rick. Yeah, a lot of what we do, it's like the brain is this expectation machine. It's an expectation engine. It's continually forecasting. What's it going to be like uh, if I have Chinese food or Italian food tonight, or if I say this or say that, in that interaction. And very often what it's doing is it's forecasting pain, right? And then we withdraw because, oh, we don't want to experience that pain. So, you know, the, the engine is trying to help us. But on the other hand, it makes us like puppets or robots. We're continually getting pulled by the strings of our avoidances of one kind or another. And so on the other hand, the way to free ourselves and also to be more powerful and engaged in life is to be willing to tolerate the forecasted pain and then still go down that road. Now, don't be dumb. Don't put your hand on the hot burner. Don't run through the red light. Don't shoot up the heroin and all the rest of that. Don't do those things, okay? <laughs> but there's this key phrase in psychology called distress tolerance. It's a fancy phrase. But if we could tolerate the anticipated distress, we would experience from, say, being open with a friend at lunch or admitting fault or asking for forgiveness, or asking for friendliness, asking for love, whatever it might be. If we could tolerate the discomfort that we might experience if we were to do that, then we could step forward much more boldly. Having a discovery that I could be with difficult 
emotions or feelings was a moment in my life I'll never forget. I was sitting on the couch mm. watching Oprah's Super Soul Sunday. I was, she was interviewing <laughs> Pema Chodron. And uh -huh. Pema posed the question of uh, when difficult emotions come up, asking yourself the question, can I be with this? Yeah. And it's the first time I had ever heard that question. And I realized there was a whole bucket of scary feelings inside of me that I was trying to avoid. Um, and mm. I knew it. But the thought of, could I just, could I be with them had never even occurred to me. I just assumed I couldn't, yeah. you know? And so I stopped and I was like, well, huh, I don't know. Can I? Maybe I, maybe I could try just a little bit. That yeah. shifted really the trajectory of my adult life. Mm. I mean, it's so powerful to know that, that you can be with what comes up. Might need some yeah. support more times than others, but you can and you can survive it and that life can be bigger on the other side of that. I mean, that's life-changing. I've gotten a lot of that from from the two of you guys in your conversations together in your podcast. Yeah. That's so lovely. I'll tell a story here that Forrest doesn't know. And it's oh, a bit okay. of a risk for me to even tell the story. <laughs> please, and you'll understand please. why when I okay. tell the story. Okay. Uh, but for me, it really illustrated this. So the short version is that uh, I grew up in a loving, decent home. And the, I'd say, culture in my home was very Midwestern and conservative in a lot of ways in terms of lifestyle. So there was no talk whatsoever about the body, sensuality, anything like that. It was just wasn't talked about. And then fast forward 20 some odd years later, I'm about 27, 28. I'm in this kind of human potential environment. I'm still a young man, still frankly, very kind of embarrassed about my body. I felt skinny. It was scrawny. I was very young going through school. So taking showers with a bunch of kids, you know, a bunch of other boys in junior high or high school was often a kind of an uncomfortable experience. And uh, there I was in this touchy-feely workshop where we're going to learn massage skills. And the start of the workshop <laughs> with about a dozen people, half of whom were very attractive young women my age, the other half were dudes like me of various kinds, we were supposed to stand up in front of the group and introduce our body to the group. Just introduce your body. Now, right there, you're standing up, you're exposed, <laughs> you're completely wow. seen, right? There wow. you are. And you're going to say, well, these are my shoulders, this is my hair. And try not to comment about judging it or not, but you are introducing your body. This is my belly. This is my sagging flesh, whatever you make. Exactly. Oh, no. I love your face, Jenny. <laughs> okay. So I'm like, oh, this is insane. So already on the cringeometer, the cringeometer, it's an eight at least, just standing there with my clothes on, just introducing my body. So I'm about number five or so in the sequence here. First person stands up, introduces their body, no big deal. Second person stands up, takes off their coat, takes off, you know, and does their shoes, introduces their body, right? Number four, let's say. Third person introduces their body, they get down to kind of their underwear and a t-shirt, Next person is a woman next to me. Uh, she's down to bra and underwear, and then it's my turn. What am I going to do? And at that point, <laughs> it was like a 10. Oh. Talk about the anticipation. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. West, where is your cringeometer right now? Are you doing okay? Yes, we like I'm, I'm, I'm toughing it out. I think I know where okay, the story okay. is going. So okay, I'm, going, uh, I'm waiting going. for the punchline over here. Uh, uh, okay. I'm feeling it right now. I'm feeling it right now. Okay, like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Am I going to basically embrace the Gom Jabbar using the reference from Doom? You know, <laughs> am I going to go for it? Or am I going to, uh, what's out? Either way. And I go, okay. So I just start 
take you know, I stand up, those are my body, and I peel off uh, my pants, I take off my shirt, and then I drop my underwear. This is it. This is my body. <laughs> oh my gosh! And in that moment, in that moment, I swear to you, I felt like 500 volts shot through my body for about eight seconds. <laughs> Grounded yeah. out. He's like lightning struck. <laughs> 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 but then, forever after, whatever. It's a body. We all have a body. Yeah. You know, the, right. uh, you know, Virginia Satir, the great family therapist, um, would do workshops where she'd have people bump their belly buttons into each other as kind of an icebreaker in the very beginning. Like, we all have belly buttons. We're all human. Yeah, we all have a body. Yeah. But that would be an example <laughs> of a dreaded experience, so at funny. least a 10. But you step into it. You do these wise experiments. It was a safe setting for me to go for it. And, and you did. It was yes. like, whatever. Well, I'm, oh, I am proud. But very often, it's not so horrible. <laughs> I am proud for you. I am proud for you that you did that. And I think that is brave. And you're right, though. We can kind of go there. And then all of a sudden, we realize we didn't have to be so afraid. How liberating. And yeah, we've been going to new totally right. ever since, right? Forrest, keep your clothes on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't, don't get any ideas <laughs> oh, about, <gosh>. like, <laughs> just settle down yeah, over there. I know. I'm well regulated. I got it together. Oh man. What a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Oh yeah. But to go back to what you said, Jenny, earlier, you know, when we risk the dreaded experience, when we push back the bars of our invisible cage by just a notch, and we do it in such a way that we set ourselves up to succeed. I knew that I had 28 years of issues around body shame at that point. And I just thought, you know, I'm tired of it. That's another thing that can kind of happen. We just feel tired of doing laps inside the track, inside our invisible cage. And then we hopefully choose well, do an experiment, see how it goes. Was it that bad? Was it horrible? And then when, as usual, it goes pretty well, take it in. Help that learning land so you really get it and it really sinks into you. And to me, that fundamental process risks the dreaded experience in a very careful way designed to succeed at it. And then when you do succeed at it, learn the good lesson, which step by step by step keeps pushing the bars further and further back and expands the space of the life that you can have. conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. 
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. That is something that I have learned from your teachings specifically, which is as we look to make the move from a state to become a trait, to really be with and savor and take in and notice and appreciate what it's like when we get to the other side, so to speak. And, you know, Tara Brock, I think... The after the rain idea. Yeah, I don't know the origin yeah. of that, but you all must have a connection over that somehow. Is pausing to take yeah. in once we have ridden the the emotional wave, whatever that is, yeah. and we've come to a place of of being able to have some peace to take in that peace to take in that peace. Because from a neurological perspective, right, we're doing something there. We're actually growing the ability to make those connections and extend that yeah. that place. Is that right? Totally. It's like you're kind of growing into. You're inhabiting who you want to be. It's still you, but it's a you that's less burdened, that feels happier, calmer, more open-hearted, braver, more spacious for other people. You're growing into who you want to be, and you're helping that become established in you. Oh, yeah, that's it. Right, and I think we can do this in big things, like, you know, a big moment like that, but there's thousands of small moments, too, you know, where just like today I meditated or today I exercised and I did what I said I was going to do and there's just, it's a it's subtle, but there's an internal feeling of congruence and we sort of do what we say to ourselves we're going to do and we meet our commitments to ourselves. There's just a very subtle internal congruence, but if we can learn to notice that and savor it a little bit, it makes it easier and easier to continue those behaviors. You know, can I go back to something Forrest said back when we were talking about this dreaded experience to begin with? Yeah, totally. Help me with your words. You said something about how it was to be like you were afraid of being a bad person or a bad soldier. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So one of mine, I think many people have multiple. I certainly have multiple. Um, It it gets to various uh, kinds of social exposure. And particularly feeling like I've done wrong, like I am wrong, like I did the wrong thing. I I can recall in vivid detail so many different moments in my life, often in kind of work or school environments, where I messed up something, I submitted a homework assignment the wrong way, I was called into my boss's office because I messed up something I was supposed to do. And those moments are just like cast in such stark relief for me with so much painful emotion attached to them. And so that's another kind of indicator that might be helpful for people. Like what really stands out in your memory negatively? And that's generally a pretty good indication of like where some of those dreaded experiences are found for you. So yeah, that's mine. Like feeling like a bad person is generally how I phrase it. Feeling like a bad person. Yeah. I mean, I can relate to that. But when you said that, the other thing that I was struck by is, Eric has talked about this on the show before, but that my mom has been suffering from Alzheimer's for a number of years now. And the last few have been the most difficult and we've been very involved in her care. And so as she has been sort of disappearing little by little, slowly by slowly, that has brought up a bunch of stuff with me, with her. And I realized the tendency that I have to go to blaming her for either doing or not doing something as I was a child, which has caused me to now have to suffer with this thing, this, you know, as an adult. 
So when you said that, man, you know, I mean, it, it's amazing. So you can grow up with Rick Hansen as your dad <laughs> and still I love have, that we're talking about this. Yeah, and yes. still mm-hmm. have core issues. Like it's not necessarily anyone's, quote, fault, right? Like I even heard, was it Kristen Neff, who's like the mother mm-hmm. of self-compassion in my mind. Mm-hmm. And she said that she heard her son remark and like the only thing she's really ever wanted to instill in her child is this sense of self-compassion toward, you know, to really cultivate that. So like, that is like, I mean, if you are set up to like be armed with self-compassion for life, it's to be Kristen Neff's child. (laughs) But even then, at some point, she heard some self-loathing and self, like really just Mm -hmm. some words coming out of her child's mouth. And she thought like, wait a minute, maybe this is not all about the faults of our parents and the faults of our, maybe it's just how we're wired, right? Like maybe it's just how our brains are, you know, again, back to some of of your work, Rick, you know, like Velcro for the negative and Teflon for the good, you know, we can hold it looser when it's not so much our fault or our parents' fault. Yeah. Well, I I love that we're talking about this because I think that it's such a cool thing. Just to, to put it kind of simply, I, I think it's so cool and I think it's so important that we talk with people about this on a regular basis where particularly come up to me and they're like, wow, you know, you're Rick's kid, you must just be like perfectly well adjusted and psychologically healthy and all of these things. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, come I, on, I'm a human, right? I would totally right? imagine that, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah, but, and that's a very, very natural thing for people to think, right? That if you're the kid of a psychologist, you're gonna end up just being like perfectly well adjusted. And for starters, I would say that I know lots of kids of psychologists and none of them are perfectly well adjusted. <laughs> so if you're still holding on to that belief, that's just demonstrably <laughs> not true, as I could say from my personal experience. But I think that it takes it to an even more important point, which is the one that you've raised, which is this idea of whose fault it is. And what does it mean to become a healthy, happy, functional person as an adult? And my personal view on this, for starters, it takes me a little bit into like nature nurture, where as near as we can tell, about half of the stuff that makes us who we are is nurture, is based largely in like what our parents do to us, what happens when we're young, interactions with other kids, all of that good stuff. And about half of it, roughly 30 to 70%, depending on who you ask, comes down to nature, where this, the our genetic constitution, our leaning toward being a little bit sadder, a little bit happier, whatever it is. And your parents do a lot. And I'm a big believer in developmental psychology and like the huge impact that the first three years has on a person's life. But what's really, really funny is the more that I've learned about psychology, the more that I've started to gain an appreciation for the impact of nature and like how much of this is just about like the path in life we all tread where everyone comes into the world with a wounding of some kind, something they hold in their heart, nobody comes in fully formed, nobody comes in perfect. And in the first 10 years, most people get out of it alive, but nobody gets out of it unwounded. That's my firm personal belief. Nobody gets out of it unwounded. And then the job of the next 30, 40, 50 years of your life is figuring all that stuff out creating a coherent narrative around it, doing the work internally, figuring out how to reconcile those experiences. And I think that that's a common human experience. And for me, it just really pulls me into like a deep appreciation for other people and all the work that they're doing that we don't see. And also a way to be kinder to ourselves. Like nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. Rick's not perfect. None of us here are perfect. Nobody came in perfectly clean. 
And yet we're all just kind of doing the best that we can. And it certainly helps me hold a lot of my early experiences a little bit more lightly, <laughs> including, you know, the normal stuff of, of a parent bumping into a kid and misunderstandings and all that good stuff. Um, and just having an appreciation for how this stuff is hard. And even if you get born into a very privileged situation, as obviously I was, extremely psychoeducated parents, uh, white male growing up into like a middle class to upper middle class environment in a very safe area, all of this stuff, like deck very stacked in my favor. Still, I've got my own pathology, you know? And so if, if that's true for me, that's probably true for most everyone. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think we love narratives that we can make sense out of. So if we can be like, well, I'm this way because my parents did A, B, and C, yeah. well, then we understand it. And mm -hmm. we think maybe there's something we can do. The idea that some amount of it is nature, is genetic, is a sort of, at first glance, a profoundly sort of not enjoyable realization. Like, For sure. Oh my God. Okay, what can I do about that? Yeah. What we can reflect on, though, is how much of it is still available for us to change yeah. and improve. Totally. And you know, what I think is an interesting question, and I know you guys have explored this on your show, is sort of what are the upper reaches of potential? And also, what are the upper reaches of potential for a person? I get into this in the addiction space a lot, mm. um, because some people will achieve permanent full sobriety. A lot of other people may not achieve that, but that doesn't mean that they're not having significant victories in what they're doing. And so I think this question of, you know, sort of what are the upper reaches and how do we sort of not limit ourselves by saying, well, I can only get so far, but also not have expectations on ourselves that constantly make us feel like we're falling short. I feel like this is such a nuanced point that we could probably spend 10 episodes on, but I'd love to hear you guys reflect a little. Well, this is squarely in Rick's wheelhouse, so I'm going to, I'll toss it over to him initially and then maybe chime in. Wow. Well, I love this topic. It relates to the book I just wrote, Neurodharma, which is really about the upper reaches and kind of dusting off the vision of what is actually possible for us as regular human beings that was prevalent in the culture in the 50s and 60s, especially the 60s and 70s, and then has been kind of pushed aside as we've been grinding it out, you know, as a culture and certainly in America over the last 30, 40 years. So I've, I really was interested in, okay, what is actually possible in the upper reaches, just like you said there, Eric. So I want to kind of get it this way that speaks to what you and Forrest have been talking about, which is, first of all, I want to fully acknowledge right here, publicly for the recording, having messed up a lot as a father. And there are things that I look back on and I feel the wince of healthy remorse. Other things I look back on, I have what I call skillful correction, which is different from remorse, but it's a recognition that, oh, I wish I had done it better, or now at least I know how to do it a better way. So I look back on all that. And I think one of the dreaded experiences for people is being really confessed in their faults to engage what Eric knows well, a fearless and searching inventory of how you've harmed others, how you've harmed yourself, not just harmed others, but harmed yourself and lost your nerve, swerved away, dropped the ball, let yourself be hijacked by that wolf of hate inside, that the aggressiveness, the anger. It's really important to be big enough and brave enough and humble enough to really acknowledge that. But for many people, understandably, it's a terribly uh, dreadful experience because 
when they experienced it in the past as little kids, they felt very much like a bad soldier, a bad person, a bad human. And maybe it even came with a lot of punishment and a lot of shame, even traumatic abuse. So part of freeing ourselves, which I think is necessary actually, to move up the mountain of the upper reaches of human potential, is to become more and more comfortable with the experience of admitting fault, of taking appropriate blame, not erring on the side that many people, especially women in the culture who are socialized to do this, not taking over responsibility for the upsets and experiences of others, not beating yourself up more than you really, really should, but a willingness to just go, wow, I so messed up. I'm so sorry about that. I really want to acknowledge it fully. There's no defensiveness here at all. How can I make amends? What can we do? That's a necessary step in actually freeing yourself of what deep in your heart you know you did wrong. And if you don't free yourself of that, it's like ballast. It's like lead weights holding down the balloon, you know, of the rising into those upper reaches. So I just want to really put that one on the table. It's a very important part of personal growth and development, even at the higher reaches of awakening. a huge fan of the middle way you know it's mm-hmm. it's the teaching i come back to over and over i feel like a cliche of myself um with it <laughs> but really finding that appropriate level the right level for us of recognizing our faults recognizing yeah. our shortcomings owning those but mm-hmm. not swinging too far over to the other side where we think we're awful people in aa we used to say humility is the right understanding of your good and your bad traits and i really liked that because yeah. humility was a word that was used a lot in in 12 step programs and you know used correctly it's not this like groveling you know humiliation right you know to me it's an accurate assessment finding the middle ground of those things i just finished reading joseph goldstein's book mindfulness. And I'm not sure I'm going to get the words right, but the idea was, and I thought it was so wise, that he made a distinction between like guilt and shame, I think. It was in the light of forgiveness. And he was talking about how that if we sort of unpack and live in this realm of of shame where we are just constantly, you know, feeling awful about ourselves and flogging ourselves and how did we do this? And if we just unpack and live there, it's as egoic, you know, as being obsessed with yourself in a, in a grandiose way and thinking yeah. you're amazing. And that there can be this almost middle way, but wise, equanimous, that's a word, that's the right version of that word. Yeah. I might need to read the book again. But anyway, but if we can just sort of hold that with a little more wisdom, that we can forgive ourselves yeah. and move on. Right. And then and not be so parked back in the past in that way. And that could be a healthier relationship with some of our mistakes. You know, thinking back on what you said earlier, Ginny, about fear of being judged by others, which is something I've really had a lot myself. In a way, what we're talking about here, I'm just realizing it. It's like, where is moral authority in your life located? 
There's a term in psychology, locus of control. There are people who have sort of inner, internal locus of control, or other people who look at life as external locus of control. Where are the forces? Do you see yourself as buffeted by all these external forces? Or do you feel like, hey, the location of how I'm moving in my life is this engine and rudder in my own personal motorboat, you know, as I go down the bumpy river of life, right? And in much the same way, I think we can have either an externalized locus of moral authority, or we can have an internalized locus of moral authority in which I get to decide in the inner temple of my being, what is a fault? The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates, young voters who are angry, the Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. What is an error? You know, what deserves a wince of appropriate shame? And what is simply a matter of skillful correction? Or frankly, it's just a matter of personal preference. And they kind of like the dishes organized this way, I organize them that way, and it's not a blameworthy event that I just organize the dishes in a different kind of preferential way. That is located in me, and the location of forgiveness is most fundamentally located inside yourself as well. Isn't that cool? Oh, if I could insert like that emoji with like the top of its head being blown off right now, like, oh, I feel like I just had one of those experiences that is so powerful. And that is so true. And I think, you know what, that is something actually that my mother used to struggle with is having that inside of herself as opposed to yeah. outside. Because she used to tell me over and over again to sort of, uh, or encourage me, right, to have that sense of moral authority within myself as opposed to outside. A lot of things are kind of connecting in my brain right now. And I realized that over time, I really... I've worked to do that, and it has been worthy of that work. I mean, it has been a powerfully liberating thing. How do you encourage people to take steps in that direction? I've never actually languaged it exactly like this, but I think we're getting at something really important. Um, part of it that comes up immediately for me is a certain amount of scruffy independence that basically says, I get to claim for myself the most fundamental judgment about whether I did good or bad. I'm open to inputs from others, you know, our friends. That's why I think it's really important to practice in community. It's important to teach with other teachers. It's important to go to meetings when you're working on your sobriety of some kind or other. I mean, it's really important. But at the end of the day, where is that ultimate moral authority located, externally or internally? And to motivate themselves, I think different things come to mind. One is to realize that the distinction exists, that you actually can decide for yourself whether you did right or wrong, right? Whoa. And second, it's to be aware of all the vast external pressures that are trying to say to you, no, we get to judge you. <laughs> we get to say whether you did good or bad, right or wrong, and like to recognize those forces on you. And in some ways, just disentangle yourself increasingly from them. Sort of like turn down the noise, turn down the volume. It's They're muttering away over there in the distance. And internally, turn up the volume on your own fundamental innermost integrity about yourself and living true to that every day. That's a start. Well, I was just going to say, it makes me think of, Forrest, what you said earlier about as we grow into adulthood, that the work of our lives, I, I, I love the way you said it, was something about, you know, writing the narrative, right, of yeah. our 
kind of of our story of how we got to be where we are. I mean, when we realize that that pen is in our hand and we get to write that, that's big. I think another thing you said for us was um, that that Eric and I had reflected on actually before this conversation is wanting to bring it up for listeners to be able to hear and benefit from is while our patterns aren't necessarily our fault, they are our Uh, responsibility. I'd love to hear you expand expand (laughs) on that. Um, I mean, for me, I think that it's kind of the fundamental teaching of this territory. And and that's like, that's a big statement to make, but it it just brings together everything that I was talking about earlier around nature and nurture and the way that we pop out versus the person we become in this lifetime. There's a lot of unfair stuff that happens out in the world and it sucks and it's deeply unfair. And then it's about, okay, what are we doing about it? And some of those actions are taken very actively out in the world, pushing back against uh, structures that are deeply problematic in society. But some of that work also occurs inside of ourselves. You had a abusive parent, and that parent was deeply unfair to you, and it left you with a lot of behaviors, a lot of tendencies that are maladaptive because of their actions through no fault of you. Your own. Forrest is giving a hypothetical. Hypothetical. Example. Yeah, <laughs> hypothetical example. Yeah, sorry. I'm yeah, not saying you like, here yeah, is yeah, a sorry, hypothetical Sorry, that was the rhetorical person. you. That was the, that was yeah, the usted, yeah. yes. Got it, yeah. um, but uh, okay. So anyways, let's say that somebody came out with that as their theoretical parent, right? That's not fair. It's not fair. It sucks. And it's really important to have a moment where everybody goes, this is deeply unfair. And then it's about, okay, how do we want to be in this life? And that's where it starts to move into responsibility. And I I think that that action of having that horrible cringe moment of this is deeply unfair, I have been burdened with these structures by another person, by other people, by the unfair ravages of society, however you want to put it. And yet, okay, like I want to do what I can in this lifetime to be the person that I want to become, to be deeply happy to the extent that it's possible, deeply fulfilled to the extent that it's possible, and to be in integrity in my behavior with other people. And it's just true to have a moment where we kind of all go, that's a much tougher journey for some people than it is for others. And that's really unfair. And also, I don't know what else to say. And I wish I had like a better thing to say other than it's deeply unfair. And yeah, here we are. Um, and I think that that moment of claiming that responsibility is like such a pinnacle moment, such a inflection point in everyone's personal journey in this territory. And until you kind of do that, it's it's really hard to make sustained process, particularly if you're not like me and you don't come from a really privileged background and you come from a background where there are structures that are aligned against you. Unfortunately, it's even more important to have that kind of moment of like, all of this is unfair, and yet here I'm going to do my best. I just think that it's it's in many ways kind of the whole game here. Absolutely. I love how you said that in that, you know, things can improve, perhaps incrementally, and then perhaps sometimes logarithmically. I mean, but they can always get better. I think that is something that, you know, I think of Carol Dweck's work and the fixed versus growth mindset. That framework really, I think, helped me to realize oh, you know, wait, things can actually be meaningfully different than they are today in this moment. And Rick, your work specifically has has done a lot of that mm-hmm. for me too. You've really shown me some meaningful ways 
to cultivate a growth mindset. In fact, I was just this morning reading about a workshop you have coming up called Change Your Mind, right. which I'm super interested in. But talking about, I think you're offering some tools to help people change the thoughts that make them suffer and create problems with with other people, but that we have the power to change our mind for the good and that it can really feel and be very different is sort of mind-blowing for me over and over again. I don't know why. You would think once you learn that, you could sort of generalize that and never be mind-blown again, but I kind of continually am. You really uh, have a lot of tools in your toolbox to help people from a cognitive behavioral standpoint, I think, specifically. Well, I appreciate that, and it's interesting. We're almost coming full circle back to the parable that opens your show to realize that you have this power to choose the tendencies that you feed. And because you have that power, you have a moral responsibility. It's your responsibility to decide who you will feed, which you will feed, you know, inside yourselves and out there in the world as well, because those wolves, if you think of it, are of course manifest in relationships, families, companies, countries, whole species, humanity. And what wolves, which tendencies will we feed and which tendencies which will we put on a juice diet, right? whether it's in our country or inside our own heart. Uh, that's really, really fundamental. And to realize we have that power, that's just so phenomenal, isn't it? It's the heart of everything. And it's so hopeful to realize that we're not totally screwed. <laughs> we're not totally stuck. There's <laughs> yeah, always something. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, as Boris knows, it's such a trope for me. But I reject, I'm with Captain Kirk. I reject the Kobayashi Maru scenario. <laughs> I'm with Viktor Frankl. There's always something you can do, if only inside yourself. If only all you do is deliberately ride out the storm of the worst day or hour or minute of your entire life. Okay, but you are choosing to ride out the storm to get to the other side because all storms pass eventually, uh, one way or another. Uh, all bleeding stops eventually, as they say in the <laughs> OR, one way or another. But anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> I think your whole approach is fantastic. That's why I've always had great harmony with Eric, you know, real simpatico, camaraderie, yeah. you know, good guy. And um, it really does boil down to which one will we feed right. in the very precious minutes of our life. Right. I th the law of impermanence in Buddhism really allows us to have hope, right? Because we know that yeah. things will pass. We know yeah. that. We know it will change. I just finished Joseph's book this morning. So that's a thick tome on mindfulness. Thank you for acknowledging that because it is, and Eric has been my witness. It's taken me months to go through because I've really gone chapter by chapter yeah. each morning and tried to kind of reflect on it. And it's a dense, it's dense. If you really yeah. read through it, and there's a lot of oh, wisdom yeah. there. Man, he rivals you, I think, for the Dalai oh, Lama. Oh, he's my that. teacher. I respect Joseph. <laughs> oh, he's amazing. One great thing about him, he could care less about fame. I heard this advice once to aspiring authors uh, pursue excellence ignore fame. And I wish more people would heed that advice. Joseph absolutely could care less about fame. He's totally the real deal. You get that as you read the, the words on his page to this whole point. He said, talking about mindfulness and the gifts of mindfulness, he said, even the first few moments of genuine mindfulness are a turning point in our lives because we realize perhaps for the first time that the mind can be trained, can be understood, can be liberated. We get glimpses of something beyond our ordinary, conventional reality, touching a space that transforms our vision of who we are and what the world is, and we understand that there is a direct and clearly articulated path to this end. And I thank you all for helping illuminate that path in your work. Thank, thank you, you for so bringing much, Jenny. it in. That's incredibly kind. Yeah, I really appreciate that.
Yeah, I think your work is accessible. And Forrest, it's been great to see sort of an addition to what Rick is doing. You know, there is really something special that happens with the two of you that is just different than just Rick. You oh, know? yeah, um, absolutely. There's, there's definitely something that, that is created there that, that is special. So you guys definitely are illuminating points along the path. So thank you. Well, thank you so much, Eric. I really appreciate that. Yeah. In the past few years, there have been so many moments with my mother caring for her when mm. um, I have wanted to, sh- she's been very difficult because of her disease. It really changed her personality and caused her to be very agitated and difficult at times. And I really deeply wanted to show up with presence and love and some compassion for her. And I'm so glad that I did in retrospect. Now that was the hard work, but the right work. But your podcast, the two of you guys were a touchstone for me in the moments when I needed to reconnect with that true nature, with that, that's that tone that I wanted to set that presence, that love, that gentleness and forgiveness. I would get in my car and I would drive around and run my errands, listening to the two of you talk to one another. And it brought such delight and gladness and edification and wisdom. And it brought me back to that center of presence and love and compassion every time. And I just am grateful for that, that gift that you give. And also like I'll I'll echo what Eric said, the two of you together have the most delightful dynamic that just sparks so much joy. You ought to see us watching football. Oh my gosh. I mean, I wish that I could have like Thanksgiving dinner with you guys. I want to be part of the Hanson family. I'm serious. You're really sweet. That is incredibly sweet, Jenny. No, I mean, like, thank you so much for the kind words. It really does truly mean a lot to us and mean a lot to me personally. And it's just been so lovely to do this with my dad and to increasingly have experiences of being able to have that relationship with people, have that relationship with people like you and feel like you kind of make an impact in that way. And, you know, my dad's been at this for a while and made an impact on a lot of people. And it's just been very cool to begin to get a little bit of that experience myself. And just thank you so much. It's such a kind thing to say. Thank you. And this is the first for the two of you, right? This is your first, ooh, <laughs> you know, joint yeah. effort. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Obviously, Jenny, you totally rocked it. Eric gave you a lot of room, gave you a lot of uh, air time. And great. Really rocked it. Thank you for saying that. It was a really a joy. This just felt like such a joy. And yes, Eric, Eric's the OG here at the table. With so I mean, well. he he is as always is the constant support. The, he is gracious and he is he's a pro. So thank you, thank you guys. Thanks, guys. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a monthly donation to support the One You Feed podcast. When you join our membership community with this monthly pledge, you get lots of exclusive members-only benefits. It's our way of saying thank you for your support. Now, we are so grateful for the members of our community. We wouldn't be able to do what we do without their support, and we don't take a single dollar for granted. To learn more, Make a donation at any level and become a member of the One You Feed community. Go to oneyoufeed.net slash join. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show.